Welcome to the Regain Begun podcast, where it's all about keeping weight regain at bay, overcoming setbacks, and getting real support after bariatric surgery. Here's your host, best-selling author, registered dietitian, and physician's assistant, Samira Khan. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Regain Be Gone podcast. I'm your host, Samira Khan, and this podcast is for bariatric patients who are struggling to keep the weight off. Today, we have Dr. Maria Penna with us, and I'm super, super excited to have her. For those of you who don't know Dr. Penna, she is a both certified physician in internal medicine, endocrinology, and obesity medicine. She's a first-generation Dominican-American born in New York and raised in Queens. She completed her residency and fellowship training at Northwell Health North Shore University Hospital in Long Island Jewish Hospital. She's a member of numerous medical societies, including the American Diabetes Association, the Endocrine Society, the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists, and the Obesity Society. She has also served as a member of the American Board of Obesity Medicine Exam Questions Writing Committee. She has published in various medical journals, including a chapter in Current Diabetes Review. And also, she's actively involved in diabetes education through her work in Vida C Diabetes No and has done done several presentations on TV and health magazines, including Univision and U.S. News and World Report. I am so excited to have you here, Dr. Penna. How are you doing today? I am doing well. Thank you for having me here, Samira. All right. So, you know, we have a lot of bariatric patients who would love to hear, you know, get your input on a lot of things. I have some of the questions, you know, which are commonly asked. So, so let's start off with the first one. How closely is obesity and diabetes linked? Well, I always tell patients that obesity is many times the cause of diabetes. And I always present, take a step back, just like diabetes is a disease state, so is obesity. So first okay. you suffer from obesity, which is excess fatness. It's due to many. I tell patients the disease state just like diabetes is multifactorial. There's a genetic component, an environmental component, and a behavioral component to obesity. So they are really closely linked. And if you go onto the CDC website, you'll see a correlation as the incidence and prevalence of obesity grew, so did diabetes. Wow, that's 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 unbelievable. So can a modest weight loss after bariatric surgery, like maybe a little as like, um, say, 5% of total body weight, does it help to improve type 2 diabetes in patients who are obese? Absolutely. Uh, there was a large trial, ongoing studies called the Diabetes Prevention Program. And basically, they did just that. They studied, does a modest reduction in weight, anywhere from 5 to 10%, help prevent or at least delay progression into di- in diabetes? And, and the answer is yes. Because not only does the weight goes down, but also the inflammation in the body goes down. Okay. And what about type 1 diabetes? How does bariatric surgery benefit obese patients with type 1? So in obese patients, even though they have type 1 diabetes, and we always know that type 1 diabetes is due to insulin deficiency, 
as patients get older and as they gain more weight, there's also something known as insulin resistance, even in a type one because okay. of the excess weight. So in many of those cases, yes, those patients do um, benefit from bariatric surgery or weight loss as well because they end up using less insulin to control their diabetes. And that's the that's the goal we want to go towards, correct? Less insulin? Correct. Less insulin because insulin in itself can be obesogenic, meaning increased insulin levels in the body. Like if we gave rat models, rat and experiments with rats, we've noticed by giving them insulin, they gain weight, especially what's called central oh. obesity. Yeah. So many times, even in my type ones, my goal is to give less insulin in those patients. Also, you reduce the risk of hypoglycemia or a low sugar attack, which is found in both type one and type two. But really type two uh, patients really do benefit from bariatric surgery, especially if they're obese. Okay. And also, of course, we see improvements in insulin requirements and also the glycemic status, right, of type yes. 1? Is that correct? Okay. Yes, and also other parameters, right? A type 1 diabetic is at a higher risk of high blood pressure, high cholesterol. So oh, okay. other comorbidities also improve. Okay. So what about hypoglycemia after bariatric surgery, especially gastric bypass? I do see people, you know, patients complaining that they're hypoglycemic. What are your thoughts on that? So the problem is that when they have bariatric surgery, the anatomy of the stomach or the, or the intestine changes. So you end up with the word bypass means that from the moment the food enters the stomach area and goes into the intestine, you're bypassing a whole loop. So to make it easier, you eat, you ingest, your body already has sensors or signals that says, okay, now let's produce insulin. So sometimes you'll eat a meal, you produce extra insulin because that's what the bariatric surgery does. It helps you produce more insulin. But sometimes that food quickly translates your gut and the insulin stays in your system. So it lingers on, even though the food is already being digested. That lingering of the insulin in your system is what causes the hypoglycemia or the low sugar attack. One way of bypassing that is by avoiding simple carbs. If you have a mixed meal where you have fat, uh, you know, healthy fat, protein, fiber, and all this, yeah. protein, correct. You actually help mitigate that insulin surge and you, pr- and you help reduce hypoglycemia. Oh, okay. So that's good to know because, you know, that we see that quite a few times I've seen that. So moving on to a very, very important topic is thyroid, about the thyroid, hypothyroidism. Is that another condition which is common seen with obesity? So it's interesting. I have noticed, so first let's talk about what thyroid is. So this called thyroid stimulating hormone. It's the test that you do on your blood to see if your thyroid levels are normal. It's within a certain reference range. So it might be very confusing. When the TSH is high, it means that your thyroid levels are actually low. And it's the person, opposite. It's the opposite. It's okay. The opposite. I always explain that. So yes, there has been with obesity a correlation in the in levels of TSH. You notice higher TSH levels with patients with obesity for whatever reason. Maybe the theory could be that the body really, you know, it's a thyroid gland that produces thyroid hormone, and maybe the thyroid gland cannot keep up with the demand. Thyroid hormone is really weight based. Like when I dose it for patients, for the most part, it correlates with the patient's weight. So you can almost say in theory that the thyroid gland cannot keep up with the excess weight. So it's just not enough to take care of all the metabolic needs of the body. And that's why there's a, there is a correlation. And that's why hypothyroidism results with obesity? 
So yes, yeah, so you it's not the other way around. It will be that obesity can lead to okay, it's the other way around. Okay, or, or even a little bit what's called borderline or subclinical hypothyroidism. Okay, and it's All also right. important to know just before many people feel that it's their thyroid gland that leads to the obesity. And right, that's to- what that's what is very confusing. So what I try to explain to patients is that yes, the thyroid can, and I do optimize even in my patients with low thyroid. If they're not they're not taking the right amount of thyroid hormone, it can hinder their weight loss for sure. However, in patients with morbid obesity, with an excess amount of 50, 60, even 100 pounds or more of weight, is not their thyroid. Because for the thyroid to lead to that, other complications would have occurred, including what's called myxedema coma. Like the really, really low thyroid levels can cause heart problems or cognitive dysfunction or other things that would lead them to the hospital before they got to that level. So what I'm trying to say that, yes, your thyroid can account for a couple of pounds, but it does not account for all of the weight. All of the weight. Okay. So getting the thyroid diagnosed and treated the right way is very important, exact, right? For weight loss to make sure, because many thyroid patients also have to address the insulin and leptin resistance, the metabolism that gets like really lowered and other issues. Yeah. So yeah, go ahead. So basically this is what I tell, I have a patient of several pounds overweight has a thyroid issue, right? And they're taking legal thyrox or synthroid or whatever it is. Unless their TSH is on the borderline and the doctor, regular doctor doesn't know much about thyroid, they say, okay, you're within reference range, your TSH is fine, go home. But sometimes even if it's a little bit on the low side, I tend to get, they're already taking medicine. I give them a little extra with the intention that this will help them with energy levels and also their metabolism. Because think about it, if you're Correct. being sluggish, if you're tired, you're less motivated to make the right yeah. choices. You're less exercise to, to exercise. do anything. Yeah. Correct. Even mood. There has been some, some data to suggest that there is a link between borderline thyroid or low thyroid and depression. So if okay. you optimize a thyroid, they tend to do better in that sense. Okay. So mm-hmm. levothyroxine, right? The timing of the meds with, me- with meals, when are we supposed to take it? Should we take it in the morning or the evening? How does it interfere with absorption? Excellent, excellent question. I actually had a patient with the same exact case today. This patient taking a lot of levothyroxine, I think definitely more than what the weight requires, and the thyroid level is still not controlled. So when you have patients with th- fluctuating thyroid levels, one thing to look at is when are you taking the medication? So ideally, it's a hormone. So it has to be invested ideally in the morning on a completely empty stomach, aside from their other medicine. That's something very important. Many times people wake up in the morning and take their thyroid medicine with other medications. No, you take your okay. thyroid medicine separate from your other medicines. You wait at least, many doctors say an hour, but it's hard to wait an hour, but at least 30 to 45 minutes, then you take everything else. Okay. If you're going to take a vitamin, make sure that you take it at least four hours apart because things like calcium, for example, can interfere with the absorption of thyroid hormone, thus leading to fluctuating levels of oh, thyroid. Oh, wow. Like four hours between vitamins and-, and, and for vitamins, for sure. Okay. With other with food and with other things and their other medicines, half an hour to forty five minutes is just fine. But for vitamins, at least four hours apart to prevent interference with absorption. What about can we take it at night? Before we go to bed? That's a very good point. So some people, because they forget to take it in the morning, yes, maybe after dinner, if you wait like a full one to two hours after dinner, you're not going to snack or anything else, then yes, you can take it at night. The idea is to be consistent. That's something okay. you do. As long as you're consistent, you're good. So if I take it at night, I should do that every night. 
Correct. Correct. Okay. Now, another thing, let's say you forgot your thyroid hormone and you're like, oh, my doctor says to take it first thing in the morning on an empty stomach. So that's it. I'm skipping a day. I actually recommend, and you'll get different opinions, but I recommend, look, take it anyway, because you'll at least absorb something rather than nothing. Okay. But I have it, but you can still take it. Yes, that sounds good. All right. So moving on to like endocrine abnormalities, like Cushing syndrome, how is that related with obesity? Because we do have patients with Cushing's who have had bariatric surgery. Okay. So Cushing syndrome, so it's important to distinguish syndrome from disease. Syndrome just means that a clinical presentation of Cushing, and that can be due to, as due to excess cortisol. Now, is this excess steroid or cortisol coming from the body within? Sometimes it's coming from exogenous steroids, meaning if your doctor is giving you multiple medial dose packs or sterile packs because of asthma or rheumatoid arthritis, people who are on steroids chronically for transplants, rheumatoid arthritis, right. whatever it is, that can cause Cushing, voice, Cushing syndrome, right? But then there's another thing. Let's say you're producing excess cortisol because of your adrenal glands, the glands on top of your kidneys that produce what we call adrenaline, quote unquote adrenaline. Part of that adrenaline includes cortisol. Sometimes if you have a little lesion or a mass or a tumor on your adrenal gland that produces excess cortisol, that can cause Cushing's disease. The same can be said by the small master gland in the brain called the pituitary gland. Okay. That can also stimulate your adrenals to produce more cortisol, and that can lead to this Cushing syndrome state. The patient that has what we call as doctor's iatrogenic, or meaning that we cause this Cushing because of a medication, then we stop the medication and the symptoms should subside. But a patient going into bariatric surgery because of Cushing disease, they really need to address the etiology or the cause because even though they do surgery and they lose weight, they will still have the weight. Oh my God, they're struggling to keep it off. Yes. And many of my patients, remember when we work together, we would do pre-surgical testing. One of the right. things I recommend that my patients do before they go into bariatric surgery is, you know what, be screened for a Cushing syndrome because maybe that's the cause. And if we can, you know, if we diagnose it and treat it, maybe you don't need bariatric surgery. It's something also very important. Oh, okay. But that's interesting. Okay. So many patients should ask, at least inquire before going to bariatric surgery, hey, am I Cushing void? And, and also what are the features of Cushing syndrome? You got a round face. Right. Is that is that the same as moon face? Moon face, yeah. They yes. call it moon okay. face. You know, before we use a term use a term uh, buffalo hump in the back. Yes, yes. Right. But now we use increased dorsal fat pad. Okay. Um, you know, but we also get these purplish stretch marks, especially around the belly area. So those are all signs of pushing syndrome. Okay. And cortisol, when you say the cortisol, is that the same as the stress hormone cortisol? Yes, the stress hormone cortisol, correct. Okay. Which okay. we all produce. You know, it's what helps in the morning. It tends to be higher. It helps us get up in the morning. Um, during moments of stress, we produce cortisol as well. So it's definitely necessary. It becomes a problem when it becomes excessive and it's not regulated. Okay. Addison's disease, is it an, it's an autoimmune condition, correct? Correct. And also what happens when the adrenals are unable to produce the sufficient hormones? And the, is, that, is the opposite condition known as Cushing's disease? The opposite of Addison's disease? So yes. So Cushing's disease or Cushing's syndrome is an excess of cortisol. Addison's disease is a deficiency of cortisol. Very rare. And the clinical presentation tends to be unexplained weight loss, low blood pressure, low blood sugars, a lot of dizziness, passing out, loss of axillary hairs or hair in your groin area. All of those are signs of Addison's disease. 
sometimes darkening of the skin can also occur a sign of Addison's disease. Okay. So that's the opposite of yes, And I would okay. like to, because, you know, I, I definitely believe in complementary medicine and, and, and not only alternative, but complementary. Use traditional medicine and alternative things. But one thing that you hear a lot in a lot of wellness centers is the whole term of, of adrenal fatigue, right? Okay. Adrenal fatigue, the true adrenal fatigue is Addison's disease. is a deficiency of cortisol. Okay. People consider adrenal fatigue as what I would consider consider an excess of cortisol in your system from always being like, or excess adrenaline from always being stressed, not sleeping well, not eating well, not exercising, psychological stress. All those things lead to excess cortisol making you feel tired. But true adrenal fatigue, you have to be careful. Many people take, you know, these natural supplements that do contain steroids in them and can cause weight gain, thinking they're helping their adrenals when in fact they're just creating more harm. Oh, wow. That you have to be careful about, I guess. I see a lot of people doing supplements and it actually does not help. Does not help. Okay. Moving on to PCOS, polycystic ovarian ovarian syndrome and infertility. Does bariatric surgery help? Absolutely. This is another one of the of those endocrine disorders where it's like, is the chicken or the egg? Which one came first? So polycystic okay. ovarian syndrome is characterized by insulin resistance or patients. These women tend to have prediabetes, irregular periods, acne, facial hair, hair loss, and multiple cysts in their ovaries, irregular or absent periods, like we said. So okay. all of these, or it could be some of these, it all depends on the patient. Some okay. women, and many times weight gain. So PCOS is definitely, you know, as you know, associated with weight gain, but I've also had patients with completely normal weight, yet they have PCOS. So okay. in those patients with PCOS, confirmed PCOS, either clinically or based on blood work levels, because it could be a combination of both, those patients definitely you know, benefit from, from weight loss. And normally we recommend metformin. Metformin is great for those patients. Metformin is used for diabetes, but it's also great for women with PCOS because it can help bring down their testosterone levels, regulate their hormones, bring back their periods, and also help with ovulation. And many women have been able to get pregnant only on, you know, on metformin. But why is it that they respond well to metformin? Because metformin can help them with weight loss. So the key here is weight loss. So yes, bariatric surgery can help in some women improve their PCOS. Because remember, PCOS is a chronic condition. Okay. That being said, though, when a woman does undergo bariatric surgery, she should wait anywhere from six months. You know, it's really recommended at least a year, anywhere from six months to a year before, you know, not getting pregnant because of the nutritional deficiencies that, that can happen. But yes. Okay. Other Uh-oh. cases really quickly is that women due to excess weight may present with PCOS like syndrome. So that's the other, uh, the other. What is, what is it again? So women that, that have normal periods, but when they gain weight, yeah. periods go away. Sometimes that's been the case where because of the weight, the periods become irregular. So those women really don't have a hormonal problem. They create it due to their excess weight and poor diet. Oh, okay. Once the weight goes away and the diet is cleaner, they tend to do quite well. And the periods are regular. And their periods are regular. What about reduced libido in both men and women, as well as erectile dysfunction? How does that change after weight loss? Well, the thing is that excess weight, so people forget that fat mass or adipose tissue is an, or it produces hormones, produces markers of inflammation in the body. And sometimes 
in a woman, for example, excess fat can actually cause increased levels of testosterone, which is predominantly a male hormone. We, as men and women, we both contain, you know, produce estrogen and testosterone. What distinguishes us is that men tend to produce more testosterone, we women produce more estrogen. But in okay. a woman, the excess fat cells can produce testosterone. And in the man, the excess fat cells can become estrogen. Okay. And so, you know, hence why some women with excess weight can have a little bit of facial hair. And men that have excess weight might have what we call, you know, adequate master, some man boobs. And I'm using the latest so people can, can understand. Okay. So, yes, that can happen. So in the man, for example, that is overweight or obese, the excess weight can actually decrease his natural production of testosterone. And if he starts losing weight, he, he's able to naturally bring it back up. And that can lead to erectile dysfunction in a, in a man. And, you know, again, a woman might have var- variations in, the, in their hormones due to the excess weight. But even taking it a step back, we look at the psychological piece of it. But sometimes it has to do an issue with, you know, self-esteem and, and, and confidence. If you're not feeling attractive, if you don't feel, then the libido goes down as well. So it's multifactorial. There's, yes, there's a hormonal component, but there's also a psychological component to it. Component to it. I also have some questions which some of the patients wanted to know. What is what is metabolic testing and how does it help understand our bodies when it comes to weight loss? So metabolic testing, uh, for example, I do what's called in my office a, a bioimpedance study, for example, as one of them. There's others are doing the breathing test, the core test, and it measures what's called basal metabolic weight. Okay. Really means, you know, people have this conception about metabolism. I have fast metabolism, low metabolism. What metabolism means for the body is the production of energy, being able to ingest something. How much energy does the body burn off? So, for okay. example, BMR, basal metabolic rate, just means how much energy does the body need to just keep you alive? Like if you were to wake up and not move from your bed, how much energy is consumed by you just laying there, right? Mm-hmm. And then you know, sometimes it calculates how much energy is consumed if you walk or if you run. So that's really what it means, a basal metabolic energy. Rarely, rarely do I find, wow, there's a problem. Your metabolism is low. Rarely that's the case. Usually, and you'd be surprised, the higher the weight, the more energy is required to keep you at that weight. So those patients actually tend to have a very high resting metabolic energy expenditure. What I do like to use it, it's kind of almost as a guide to tell them, okay, this is what your caloric intake should be. If you're at a deficit, in theory, you should be losing weight. So that is a good estimate for that. But that's really just the best way to um, measure metabolism. There's also calculations people can do. You know, you can look them up online where you put in your sex, your your activity level and all that stuff. Yeah, And your weight, correct. All right. What is metabolism set point? Because, you know, they, they say she wanted to know we eat so little calories, but we plateau. So how do we increase our calories to a normal limit for our ideal BMI without gaining weight? Okay, so again, using a calculator like that would help you get an idea where your caloric intake. I have I have a different idea, Samira, like a little bit of, of philosophy when it comes yeah, to Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I want to hear what you have to say. This is what this is what I think. Definitely you have to be mindful of calories. But I'm not only looking into calories, I'm looking into the quality of your calories. Many times my patients are stuck at a certain weight. And remember, it happens because of what's called a metabolic memory. 
your body, after years of being at a certain weight, that becomes a new baseline. So when you're trying to lose weight, your body will have changes, changes where it increases your hunger, decreases your fat expenditure in hopes of restoring you to that weight. So yes, that's why people many times will lose 10 pounds and then they start plateauing because the body now wants to get stuck at that weight. But how do you override it? With exercise, with cleaner eating. Think of it as a car. If you give your car cheap gas, it's not going to run efficiently. Correct. If you give it good quality gas, it's going to run more efficiently. It could be the same amount of quantity of gasoline, but one is better than the other. The same exact thing. Meaning a munchkin, for example, you know, a donut, a munchkin might be 80 calories. A green apple might be 100. And I don't know the exact calories, but what I'm trying to tell you, because that green apple is natural, has a skin, has a fiber, has much better calories. Yeah. It will definitely burn it off better than just counting calories. And that's what I have a lot of patients. They just focus on counting calories. Also, also what's the percentage of your caloric intake? How many of those calories are coming from carbs? You know, the majority, you may only be consuming 900 calories a day, but if they're mostly carbs, you're really not going to lose weight. So there's all those things. Again, if you have the perspective that obesity is a disease, hence why bariatric surgery works. And hence why some of these patients do need medication because for whatever reason, as, as we get more you know, studies and more evidence out there, we'll know what are the genes driving your, you know, your fat breakdown or energy expenditure. And maybe that's where they need medications that work in the brain in the area that you know deals with hunger to hide and that's, you know, if you're finding yourself out of plateau, that's really where you need to speak to a doctor or a health professional to help you. What about why do physicians prescribe only levothyroxine, but they refuse to prescribe like the natural form, like armor thyroid? That was one of the questions. Okay. So the thing is with armor thyroid, I do give it in some patients. This is what I tend to do. We first start off with levothyroxine, if insurance pays, Centroid. I believe that thyroid hormone is one of the, the few cases where the brand may be better than the generic just because of the steady state and the bioavailability of the drug. You know, it's not the same as something for the heartburn. I mean, I could have that generic. But if I'm right. a medicine that's lifelong, a hormone, I want to have a very steady batch. And the branding tends to be a little bit more pure, more steady in that sense. Remember, generics only have to show 80% of what the actual original is. Okay. So you don't want to play with that. So that's the first thing I do. Optimizing the TSH to a TSH of around two-ish. So I'm going to give you a, just a random reference range, the reference range of 0.4 to let's say 4.5. The higher you are on the spectrum, the less thyroid hormone you have. So let's have a patient who's on levothyroxine and their TSH is four. I increase the dose with hopes of bringing it down to a two because they're going to get a little bit more thyroid hormone. That's the first part. Then I'll check a T3 level. There's some theories. The reason why people like armor is that they feel that, you know, levothyroxine is the, um, the precursor of active. So it's inactive thyroid hormone. That's what levothyroxine or Centroid is. And it's ingested and your body should activate it into active T3. Armor is a combination of both T4 and T3. That's why. Well, I sometimes give them Cytomel, which is a little boost to their levothyroxine, because that's a little bit of the actual active T3. The problem with armor is that armor is desiccated pig thyroid. So this is desiccated. So this is whatever. So this is from an animal. It's very variable. It's whatever the pig had at the time that it was, it was killed, 
And there's also sometimes issues with manufacturing shortages. There was once a very big shortage, and those patients were left with nothing. So I feel that until we exhaust everything with, you know, the traditional synthroid, with the rocks and cytomel, until we do that, then we should use armor as a last resort. Just because, you know, people are concerned about this whole synthetic and whatever. No, these medicines are, are made very well. They're natural. You know, the body does recognize it. Sure. Just being wiggery of, a, of an animal product when we have more modern ways of making making thyroid hormones. Yeah, that pretty much answered the question. So how do people know when it's time to see an endocrinologist? A lot of things. So for a woman, what, you know, the way that we were created, you know, whether you want to say it's God or it's a supernatural force, that we have a great way of knowing as a woman if our hormones are, are working. And that's our period. If you're getting your menses every month, for the most part, that means that the hormones controlling your body are working fine. If not, if that if your periods are off, that's the first sign, hey, I need to see an endocrinologist. You know, severe hair loss, changes in skin, those things should also prompt you to see an endocrinologist. Excessive fatigue, that's another one. Changes in your skin where you get some darkening around the neck region, underneath your armpits or the axilla, those are signs of acanthosis migracans. That might be a sign of insulin resistance or pre-diabetes diabetes. diabetes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, you know, unexplained weight gain or unexplained weight loss. You should also consider seeing an endocrinologist. And also for osteoporosis, if you tend to notice that you ha- your bones are weaker, I definitely recommend, you know, definitely a primary care doctor can manage it or your GYN or rheumatologist. But I would also recommend that you see an endocrinologist just to get a, an opinion as to what are the best treatment modalities. And the same thing for men really comes out to reproduction. The man is noticing nuanced erectile dysfunction, or if it's a teenager that hasn't developed, no, you know, the testicles haven't developed or, or things like that, then they should see an endocrinologist as well. All right. How often should we test blood levels for the, you know, the thyroid function tests? How okay. often do you recommend? So for a person who's completely healthy, normal, you know, just requesting a thyroid panel during your annual physical is more than enough if that's the case, right? But if it's a person who's, uh, you know, newly diagnosed thyroid, I would recommend, you know, initiating the medication and rechecking within six to eight weeks because it takes about six to eight weeks to notice a change in the actual thyroid levels whenever there's a medication. So it all depends. Every time you have a change in your medication, you really should recheck it six to eight weeks after to notice if that is the right medicine for you. That's really where a lot of issues with thyroid occur that the medicine has changed and has never followed up. But I think many of my patients, you know, anywhere from once they're steady, anywhere from six months to a year, it all depends. I've had patients who, you know, been on, on thyroid medicine for 10 years, 15 years, doing well. Those patients can also see me in, in a year. And if wow. you notice any changes in your energy level, weight changes, like I said, hair loss, skin changes, all those things should prompt you to see your endocrinologist or your doctor sooner to check your levels. All right. Hashimoto's. What is Hashimoto's disease? So Hashimoto's disease is this long, fancy name. Basically, it's these antibodies that is an autoimmune process. So that's the cause many times of of a low thyroid is due to Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is the body attacks its own thyroid gland, thus causing direct inflammation, and that prevents it from producing thyroid hormones. So that's what the name is, just the antibody that produces inflammation in the gland, thus rendering you low thyroid. Does anybody with everybody with thyroid disease end up getting Hashimoto's or not? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. The majority do. When you have um, Hashimoto's, that does uh, can be genetic, can be hereditary as well, especially from maternal transmission. So if your mother, your aunt, your sister has a low thyroid, you may end up having it as well. All right. 
How much of chronic obesity is genetic and how much is simple overeating and lack of exercise? There's no exact percentage. Mm-hmm. For an actual disease state of overeating, like Prader-Willi syndrome, all these syndromes, you know, I rarely encounter those things. I see obesity more as something that's, like I said, it's environmental, genetic, but also and behavioral, meaning the following. It's also, you know, the way we eat something that we learn, just like we learn a lot of things in our lives, right? Yeah. Grow up in a family where the mother is overweight, the father's overweight, right. everyone else is because of the eating habits. It's because of the foods that are being brought into the home. And what you see is what you end up doing, and you end up doing the same thing. So that's one thing. So, so I believe behavioral, if, if food is your coping mechanism, if every time that you were sad, you were given ice cream, or you wanted to be rewarded and made happy, you were giving a treat, that's what you learn is a learned behavior. So there's a strong behavioral. So you can always say, is it, is it that the, we're inheriting the behavior or, or what is? So it's a little little bit confusing. But yes, there is some, you know, evidence that, for example, I'll have a, a, a patient where the mother is in and the father's in the father's side is overweight and the and one child takes after the father and the other child takes after the mother. That too can happen. But it's really a combination of both of behavioral and, and genetics. Thank you so much, Dr. Prina. If people need to reach out to you, how would you like them to reach out to you? Do you have an email address they yes. can reach out to? Can you please let the let us know? Sure. You can definitely email me at drmpenya08 at gmail.com. I'll spell that for you. That's D-R-M-P-E-N-A-08 at gmail.com. Oh my God. That was amazing. Thank you so much again for joining us today. This week, I'm offering a limited number of free nutrition consultations to listeners of this podcast. To check in with me and reserve your spot on my calendar, just click on the link below.